What's up, everybody? I'm back with another edition of the Macro Insights Podcast, where I am joined by Mark Nelson. He is a overall expert on everything that has to do with nuclear, and he's a nuclear advisor. And he's traveling around right now, uh, meeting up with a bunch of different people in various countries. So he's on a little bit of a world tour. So I caught him right before he went. And uh, yeah, so great stuff. We're getting an update on the overall nuclear industry and much, much more. But as always, ladies and gentlemen, remember, this is not financial advice. Everything you hear from Mark and myself should not be taken as financial advice. It is strictly the opinion of Mark and myself. It's for entertainment purposes only. All right. Now, let's get into the episode. Whoosh. What's up, everybody? I'm back with another edition of the Macro Insights Podcast, where I have a very special guest, Mark Nelson. He is all about nuclear. If you've heard him on Spaces, he is uh, you know, a great voice that kind of gives a lot of great updates on the nuclear development and all that kind of stuff in the United States and globally. Uh, so we're going to go into energy markets and a lot of great stuff about that. But first, big shout out to my sponsor, Shout out to Idaho Armored Vaults. Bob Coleman and his team have been offering the lowest premiums in the game of uh, any of the precious metals that you could possibly want. They have those hard assets. They have them stored, secured, and safe for you to buy, sell, move, get, and they have extensive amounts of liquidity. So, you know, it makes it easy for you to get into the precious metal market. So go ahead and check out goldsilvervault.com and tell Bob and his team that I sent you. Tell them Green Candle sent you. And then before we get started, hit that like button, hit that subscribe button, uh, help grow the channel and help, uh, you know, spread the great word so I can keep bringing on quality guests like Mark here. All right. Enough from me. Let's bring on Mark. Mark, how you doing today, man? I'm good, Brandon. How are you? Good, good, good. So before we get started, man, uh, for, for those who don't know yet, tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Sure. I'm from Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Uh, beautiful state with no nuclear plants. Uh, went to Oklahoma State University to study engineering and Russian, which is totally not as sketchy as it sounds. Russia was a dying language in universities back then, and I just had a complete fascination with the country. Um, studied nuclear engineering in the UK, and then came back to a depressed and kind of messed up nuclear world where uh, a few years after Fukushima Daiichi, all the reactors in Japan were shut down cheap natural gas was flooding the power markets across a lot of the U.S. Uh, people were shutting down nuclear plants. And already the first attempt in a long time at reviving U.S. nuclear construction was starting to run into some very ominous dark clouds. Uh, so it was a bit of a rough time. The local nuclear plants where I was in Cleveland, Ohio, were suffering extreme financial difficulties and were in the process of maybe being shut down. So I got a little sidetracked from my nuclear engineering career and ended up doing research about why all these uh, incredible facilities were closing. And that led me to learning about electricity markets, learning about uh, energy transition issues. That's the buzzword people like to use. And that, in turn, led me to a very, very weird path where I was working uh, as an energy analyst for environmental nonprofits in California that were attempting to reverse the decline of nuclear energy because they decided that the way to protect the environment while lifting the world out of poverty was nuclear energy. There you go. That's great stuff. But you left out one detail, Mark. You, you, uh, we were talked a little bit about this pre-show. We both ran cross country and track in college at the D1 level. Uh, I actually have your stats here, so I'm gonna have to chirp you a little bit. Because I, I I had slightly better times than you. All right, I, so, I believe yeah. it. I believe it. Yeah. So you you ran a four ten in the fifteen hundred. No, 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 no. Three fifty nine. That's not true. Three fifty nine. Three. Oh, whatever okay. whatever you're looking right. at didn't right. get updated. And you then you did beat me. You did beat me because I was about to say according to the Oklahoma State website. No, they did. They time, if you're like, not important, so they don't they don't up the, update that website very fast for the non revenue sports, and they never updated my stats for senior year when I made the travel roster and I was not good, but not as bad as I was at the beginning of my career. Yeah. Hey, I, I get it, dude. I, I kind of, uh, you know, had a similar little run as, as well. So I, uh, you know, kind of, I, I guess took off towards the end of my career as well, but Hey, 
you know. But Brandon, I'll say this. Like, I'll say this, and I th- I wonder if people can associate it with a, it a little bit in their lives. Um, even when I was at my absolute best, I was the slowest guy on the team. Um, but I had the fascinating experience of being the slowest guy on the fastest team in America. Yeah, I was going to say that. I mean, I know Oklahoma State is definitely known for, you know, the cross country and track team. Um, and so, yeah, I was going to say like, man, for, for somebody on that team, for me to be be better than you, I mean, come on. Hey, man. Okay. So in my, in my defense, I was, I was pretty, pretty clever and good at school and um, kept out of trouble and showed up and ran hard and was a, tried to be a good team player. So I think the philosophy of our coach at the time, you know, he was starting to pile up the national championships with the Oklahoma state teams. And he, he was uh, interested in people who could work extremely hard, show a good example in the classroom. And if we screwed up, could be axed from the team as an example to other people without losing too much team quality. There we go. That's a fair point. That's a fair point. But all right, enough, enough about our glory days. Now Let, let's dive into it. You kind of alluded to already like the nuclear power plants that they're kind of, you know, dying in a sense in the United States. I did see something. I mean, we we're trying to find it a little bit pre-show, but I did see something that there's starting to be more developments of nuclear plants across the United States to kind of help with this, this energy grid. So like, you know, because there has been issues in Texas, there's been issues in like, you know, there's rolling blackouts in Florida and, and you know, when it's uh, uh, too hot and other things like that as well. So, you know, what do you, I guess, as, as a broad scale to start off and then we'll kind of like narrow it down, you know, how do you see like nuclear kind of playing into all of this and, you know, where it's kind of stands right now in the United States? All right. So first of all, the reason why nuclear plants were closing in the United States is not really like the reason that they've been closed in other countries. Um, Essentially, no nuclear plant outside of one in Florida in the last 20 years had to close. One in Florida, they just messed, they were doing a repair job on it, and they just really messed up an absolutely crucial thing that it is extraordinarily difficult to fix after the fact. And that's Crystal River in Florida and Pour one out for a real one, but that one just got messed up. All the other nuclear plants, all the other nuclear reactors in the United States that closed, it was just a senseless waste. Two different reasons, but the first one I want to talk about, because it has to do with commodities and energy markets, is unique to the United States. And that was in electricity markets that were invented only like 20 years ago. Some some professors came up who didn't even know anything about how electricity physically works. They didn't understand the system, but they came up with a market to control it anyway. Revenue was given out to power plants based on prices going up and down and swinging around uh, day to day, hour to hour, week to week, that sort of thing. And it was assumed that the nuclear plants would just be there providing cheap power and somebody would buy their power. Somehow that power would get uh, a customer, but people were not buying it as clean energy. And then when the natural gas came in and was really cheap, people weren't bidding much for that nuclear power. There just wasn't, there wasn't much revenue coming to the nuclear plants. And nuclear plants run, they're really, really cheap. But we were producing natural gas so cheap that it was bankrupting energy companies across America, right? Remember this, natural gas was being sold and burned at or below cost of production on average for quite a while across a lot of the United States. In these electricity markets, that meant that natural gas power plants were temporarily extremely cheap. Even worse, the way a lot of these markets were designed, somebody could say, "I know what I'll do. I'm going to build a new, or I'm going to build a natural gas plant in the next two or three years, right next to the nuclear plant, and I'm going to make sure they know about it. I'm going to make sure they see it's happening and I'm going to get a a contract for cheap gas. And then, boy, I may lose money for a few uh, years, but I will drive that nuclear plant straight out of business. And when that nuclear plant goes, the prices will get jacked up and we'll just screw the consumer. But it's fine because I'll just make windfall profit. Amazing, right? So nuclear plants that could last another 10, 20, 40, 80, 100 years. We don't even know yet how long these things are going to last, but they're not wearing out. So that time is going on and on and on. They were shut down for market decisions that are two, three, four year look ahead, which is just unbelievable. Like the 
the the strategic damage to our nation if that had continued longer and the incredible damage to some parts of our country with huge constraints on power supplies where we lost crucial nuclear plants for this stupid reason combined with often you know hobbling the nuclear plant politically so they weren't sure whether they'd be able to even justify doing upgrades if they were being attacked by politics or blocked in permitting by state offices and anti-nuclear states typically on the coasts controlled by democrats so all of that led us to losing nuclear plants straight into the 2021-2022 energy price jump. So why do you think that there's like, I, I guess, such, such a like negative connotation when it comes to nuclear? Because it seems to me like, you know, it's, it's almost like an obvious solution at this point. But um, how old are you, Brandon? I, I'm 29. So. You're 29? Yeah. So you think nuclear is an obvious solution. You're 29. I'm going to, first of all, I happen to agree with you. I'm 33 and I happen to agree with you. But let me let me say it this way. Let's have a little bit of empathy for our boomers, okay? If you had grown up during a period of time where everybody seemed to be getting richer, things seemed to be getting freer, better, there was progress. And the only thing that was a true dark cloud was the military industrial complex, stupid wars that didn't matter to America back home, but but seem to absorb our money and resources and kill a lot of people in faraway places and, uh, you know, maim and wound our young men. And you've, and you've felt that the, the only thing that could really end the world was increasingly powerful and numerous nuclear weapons. And you just looked out there and you thought, okay, nuclear energy all comes from uranium and plutonium. And the military industrial complex seems to involve companies that also are big corporations like power companies. And it's all one big thing. And if we do nuclear, you're going to do both bombs and reactors. So the only thing, the big thing you could do to stop the end of the world, to do the right thing and fight back against, uh, you know, the man is to fight everything nuclear. Well, there's almost nothing that you could do to stop a nuclear weapons program in a nuclear weapons state. That just wasn't going to happen from protests or whatever. And people tried, try to stop air bases from hosting nuclear weapons or try to delay funding for nuclear programs. That, that was attempted. It just wasn't very successful. What was successful was delaying and slowing and stopping nuclear power plant construction and getting existing nuclear plant power plants shut down. That was much more successful. So if you felt that to protect your future, protect the future of the world, the one big thing you had to do was st stop nuclear. That's what you attacked, nuclear energy. And the fear of nuclear weapons, the fear of nuclear war was a driving factor in a lot of places. And then one more thing. If you weren't sure whether it was risky or not, but maybe nuclear is risky and you didn't feel that you or your country needed it, why have any risk at all? Why not have a perfectly safe world, Brandon? So as countries sort of relaxed and de-stressed from the Cold War ending, they often ended any efforts to get nuclear weapons. And after that, they ended any efforts at keeping up a nuclear program, nuclear energy. Then you had a few famous nuclear power accidents uh three mile island back in the 70s late 70s you had chernobyl in the mid 80s and then you had fukushima daiichi you know half a generation after that the important thing here is because there was already an intense strong nuclear fear immense both elite and popular anti-nuclear movements these nuclear accidents got mythologized almost immediately let me give you an example Three Mile Island, we melted a whole reactor core. Essentially, no radiation escaped. We decommissioned the whole thing and chopped it up and put it in little containers and shipped it across the country. It's fine. Three Mile Island nuclear plant kept operating with the other reactor. Nobody got injured, not a single person. So why was it considered so bad? In part because of the large anti-nuclear movement that had already gathered strength, and was able to twist the meaning of the accident. Here's the crazy thing, Brandon. Chernobyl was something kind of similar. First of all, you had the Soviets not telling anybody about it, lying about it when called out, and a massive amount of nuclear material just blasted out, covering, just able to be detected all over planet Earth. Now, 
how many people died. It appears about in, uh, in several dozen within the first couple months and total about 50, 50 people, which makes it a not great, not terrible nuclear reactor to quote the TV show or a new uh, industrial accident, rather. It's not great, not terrible industrial accident. 50, not as bad as some of the oil and gas platform accidents, uh, worse than anything else in the history of nuclear energy. But it didn't even shut down Chernobyl nuclear plant. Like Chernobyl nuclear plant kept operating, like twin reactors, like a few meters away kept running. Day to day, like just people showed up. Some people cleaned up the one that blew up. Some people kept the react other reactors running. They kept it going towards to year 2000, so 14 more years. And the only reason they shut down Chernobyl is because a bunch of other European countries got pissy and they paid a couple hundred million dollars to the Ukrainian government to shut down their own power plant. And they used it, plus technical support, to start up another nuclear plant on the other side of the country. So does that sound like it's the worst accident ever and proof that nuclear energy can't be trusted? Only if you go into the accident with a closed mind, wanting that to be the conclusion, which is, of course, what the anti-nuclear movement did. So a lot of these things, you stack it up and you get anti-nuclear sentiment. Then you get some of the biggest strengths of nuclear energy, like the fact that it has almost no waste and it's tightly contained. It's never hurt anybody. Almost certainly never will. And that makes it better than pretty much any other type of energy production on the waste issue and environmental impacts. And that's turned into a negative where although it hasn't hurt anybody, you claim that maybe it could hurt everybody. You don't even need to cite your sources. You just assert that it's true. And there you have it. You just go from strength to strength in nuclear energy and you take all those strengths and you just bullshit about it and turn them all into negatives. Because once you've decided nuclear is evil, it doesn't matter how much you lie about it. It doesn't matter if you're an anti-nuclear expert who knows nothing about nuclear, you'll get to go on TV if you're smooth talking. Yeah. So this was the anti-nuclear world and it's people who were older than you and me and they're dying out. And some of them are super anxious and they're finding other things that haunt their, haunt their waking hours and their nightmares. Yeah. And it's not nuclear anymore. So for example, people in their fifties, there's a lot of them worried about climate change. And for those who are seventies, uh, in their 70s say worrying about climate change and worrying about nuclear feels kind of like the same thing because climate change might end the world like nuclear ends the world so maybe it's all the same thing and to stop nuclear plants is to stop climate change you get some really brain addled boomers when it comes to this topic like they're so confused they can't tell the difference between a thing that provides clean energy to decarbonize the power grid and, and climate change they, they, they're just super confused and all they remember is being a scared little kid who, who was hearing about nuclear bombs for the first time and hiding under their desk during useless school drills. Yeah. Now, our useless school drills are the active shooter drills. Just kidding. But it means that our what traumatizes our kids in different generation changes and it's no longer nuclear. So you and me, you know, I, Oklahoma, we had uh, tornado drills, but that wasn't really scary. Um, and I was in sort of a generation that didn't seem to have many fears. It just was graduating into an economic uh, depression for a lot of us coming out of college, if you recall. So that was, that was a, a, I think, a formative thing that just made us not afraid of nuclear energy, but interested in things that could provide jobs and economic opportunities that we feel our, our parents had when they got out of school. So that's one of the reasons why people 29 years old like you, 33 years old like me, don't go into nuclear hating it. We just don't know about it, haven't heard about it, haven't learned about it. And then we hear about it and we think, wait, so we've got this rock. We've got this metal that can just like power everything. Why weren't we doing this? And that's the gateway. At that point, you learn all the facts. You learn about the accidents. You can't get enough. And you're like, this is the answer. Why are, why are we not doing it? Who's stopping us? Yeah, exactly. And I, and I, and I, that makes a lot of sense, but it does seem like the narrative is kind of changing um, in a sense. So, you know, do you kind of agree with that, that statement? And do you see like kind of the sentiment becoming a little bit more, po uh, I guess, positive in a sense? And uh, I guess like projecting this out, like, do you think because the sentiment is potentially changing uh, that, you know, that that means a positive outlook for nuclear in the future? Or do you think it's going to be kind of a bumpy road? Yes. 
the sentiment is changing. The story is changing. Look, here's you. Here's me. Here we are together talking about nuclear energy on a macro podcast. Sentiment has changed in the United States, at least conservatives, liberals, left, right, pretty much everybody is for nuclear, except for a few likely corrupt special interests. So, for example, here in Chicago, um, the Chicago Teachers Union comes out against things that are good for nuclear. Why? All their electricity in Chicago for their schools comes from nuclear. That's why they have cheap power bills. Why would they even care? Do the school teachers know anything about nuclear energy? No, of course not. It's just the corrupt power structures have been sort of either paid off or I, I can't figure out why they would care and why they fight nuclear energy when it has nothing to do with what they do except for helping them. And I'm pretty sure it's about basically the wind and solar installation industries here in the state sort of angling to try to mess up the, the grid, mess up our power sources so they'll be able to do more wind and solar and make more money. So um, that may not be true everywhere, but here in Chicago, that's just one specific example of how the narrative could have completely shifted. People are starting to le learn and appreciate our incredible nuclear plants here in, here in Chicagoland. And yet we still have political setbacks because of a tiny, tiny, tiny click of ultra well-connected and probably corrupt people in state government who have the power and the leverage to go against what the people want at this point. So yes, narrative has shifted. It's a bipartisan popular issue. States like California are going from trying to turn off nuclear plants to keeping them on. That's an extraordinary thing to watch. If California can do the right thing, there's hope for the world, right? So yes, it's shifted. You ask, is it going to be a bumpy road in this country? Yes, it is. We have lost much of our ability to do large projects, even if we need those projects. So our attempted nuclear renaissance, which I alluded to back in 2012, 2013, near the start of our episode, I said there were dark clouds on the horizon for the attempted nuclear renaissance here in the U.S. Well, we attempted to build four nuclear reactors at two different power plants. Both of these power plants already had nuclear energy at them. Both were in the south of the U.S. Both were in states that don't have this dumb electricity market thing that was thought up about 20 years ago. They had the old school vertically integrated utilities who have the responsibility of building power plants, building power lines, stringing it all together, running it to, to make it to be the lowest cost with the, you know, best, best investment return for their own uh, investors, but lowest cost average over the course of multiple years. And these utilities building these nuclear plants in the South, they ran into severe difficulties because the companies building those nuclear plants had completely forgotten how to build. And they started building the nuclear plants before the blueprints were ready. Major issue right there, because if you mess up something early, it can cause huge delays down the line as you try to convince the Nuclear Regulatory Commission that even though you're changing it, it doesn't mess up the safety. I think that NRC gets a little bit of a bad rap sometimes. Repeatedly, they had to be told by the builders of these nuclear plants in the South and the U.S., two, two reactors in South Carolina, two in Georgia, they got repeatedly told, told, I know we told you we'd build it this way, but we messed up down at the job site and now we got to do it this way. And NRC could be flexible, but you got to convince them that despite you not being able to do what you say you're going to do, you're still trustworthy in doing something correct and it not messing up down the line. That matters. It actually does matter. Um, and, and the NRC was repeatedly convinced, okay, they changed it, but it's still going to work in this case. In some cases, the company building the nuclear reactors was just saying, okay, we mess this up. This is too complicated to figure out how to convince you that it should be okay. So we're just going to undo it and redo it, repour the concrete or whatever. This was a wreck. We still got these nuclear reactors built in Georgia. The ones in South Carolina were canceled. That's bad. That's that's a 50-50 odds if we're looking at those four reactors in the first wave of power plants in many years to be built in the U.S. in nuclear. Um, the two in Georgia, they get built. One of the two has already started and in commercial operation as of today. The other one is likely to enter that stage 
uh, by the middle part of next year. That's the definition of bumpy road, Brandon. If you're one of these big Southern utilities sitting on licenses to build nuclear plants, like in Georgia, or uh, sorry, in Florida, there were there were applications that were submitted and and accepted by the government for a new nuclear plant in Florida, for example, to use these same reactors that got built in Georgia. And they just, we haven't done it yet. So there's a development waiting to happen if Florida can be convinced that one, the sun goes down every night. So it's not going to be, it's not going to be the solar that, that holds up the sky in, in, in uh, Florida. Two, you don't have any wind. Offshore, onshore, it doesn't matter. People don't go to Florida for the for the the strong Florida gales. Like that's not, if you have a really strong wind in Florida, chances are it is a nasty storm and that's a bad thing for, for wind production typically. So here's, here's your situation. You've got natural gas or nothing unless you build nuclear energy. And the question is, with the bad experience in Georgia, is a Florida utility gonna take the plunge and try to build nuclear reactors? Not yet. Even though they can see the, the same reactor designs in operation successfully now in Georgia, they're looking at this. Double the amount of time that was expected. Double the amount of money that was expected. That's that's bumpy. And we have to figure out how to get our mojo back with big construction in order to have the have the confidence to do large reactors again. So that's why a lot of people are talking about small reactors or small modular reactors. Now, is this is this an issue because, you know, we haven't really been in, in production of nuclear plants in such a long time that, you know, essentially, I, I guess maybe we just, we just aren't used to, to building these kind of plants. And yes. so, that's, you know, kind of causing the delays. Yes. So, for example, a company that won the contract with Westinghouse to build the modules, the big bundles of pipes and and uh, uh, holding holding tubes for wires and instrumentation. They were supposed to come to be made in Louisiana, shipped to Georgia, and then just plug and play inside a waiting reactor structure. So the structure, first of all, wasn't being built on time. And second, every single module that came out of that Louisiana factory from a company that used to do nuclear stuff back in the 70s and 80s couldn't be used. They had to rebuild them all on the spot, which, of course, defeats the whole point of modules that are supposed to plug in almost like Lego. That was the dream. Then we're supposed to get a lot of learning from the Chinese making this reactor type first. But it turns out that if you don't have the same construction teams, you don't have the same working languages, you don't have the same crane operators, you don't have the same blueprints. If all of that is different, it's scarcely the same thing. The supply chains weren't even that similar. So once you add in bad blood that started up between China and USA, almost nothing was learned as far as I can tell. As, as I've been told by engineers who worked on that project, very little was transferred from learnings in China over to the US. And the Americans blamed the Chinese. The Chinese said, we thought you guys knew what to do and we're teaching you how to build your own reactors. So the, it was very bad blood and there wasn't much we were able to learn. Here's another thing. The, uh, the joke in the big construction management area, at least in nuclear, is that you run through everybody else and you finally have to pay out for Bechtel. So by the time Bechtel, the, the, the most famous and expensive, uh, I've heard, engineering, uh, nuclear engineering contractor to actually build the nuclear plant, not design it, not build the pipes, but just actually construct the plant. That's a different task and a different skill, by the way than designing it or producing the parts is actually running the construction and getting the thing built. Well, Bechtel was only brought in after two other big entities had already failed to build the nuclear plant. So by the time Bechtel got up to speed and was doing better and better and helping build the plant, we're talking, you know, a decade into the project and uh, immense overspending. So if we went into a new nuclear plant Knowing what the blueprints were going to be before we start, having the full design in operation in the in a next door state, and knowing that Bechtel is probably the ones you hire from day one, even though they're really expensive. So look, 
trying to save a little bit of money on your on your EPC, your engineering procurement and construction firm, like it may be a $15 billion project and you're trying to save a few tens of millions here and there on your EPC that has to put it all together. That was a mistake. Not saying that Bechtel just has a birthright to all nuclear projects, but they're the, one of the most recent ones to have had any living experience and they have a they they stand by their work and they can get it done in the end. If we combine Westinghouse, Bechtel, and a nearby state to Georgia as soon as we can, if we can get that started really soon, I think we have a shot at building large nuclear. It's going to take backstops from the feds almost certainly. It's going to take super big, deep southern U.S. utilities, almost certainly. It's going to take a lack of electricity markets, probably. I don't have the absolute conviction on that one because the electricity markets are now over 20 years old. What that means is they've stopped a lot of the construction of big, expensive power plants because what's the point? If you lose power plants, everybody gets to take get more rent from the market. And if it's difficult to build power plants, it's easier to close them than to construct them. You see that? Which means if it's nobody's job truly to build the power plants, except the market operator screaming and yelling and saying, hey, this is a problem. Why aren't people building power plants? Build power plants. Well, it's if you break up the utility structure, it's not clear that's going to happen. So prices are soaring for electricity in coastal areas of the U.S. that have messed up their messed up their power systems. We'll see. All right. Yeah. So we've kind of like gone gone through the whole United States, you know, kind of the development and maybe some of the fear and the narrative of that of that. But what about nuclear globally? Right. I mean, it, it seemed like in Germany uh, earlier, maybe it was last year, or the year before they were starting to, uh, you know, try to shut down all their nuclear plants. And then, you know, they were getting away from coal and then, you know, they're almost having an energy energy crisis. So now they're they're back on coal. And it, it seems like, you know, all of Europe was kind of having this issue you know, right when the, the Russia-Ukraine war started as well, uh, that was kind of a big fear. But, you know, you didn't really hear too much about like nuclear development and things like that uh, over in Europe. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'll leave it there. So, like, where where do you think that, that that's going? Nuclear was being stripped out of Europe for purely political reasons, only political reasons. Unlike the U.S., which was in the process of becoming today world's top natural gas producer and exporter and the top producer of oil and a net exporter of oil. that That's a country that has a little bit more room to get it wrong on nuclear without destroying economic prosperity because we're the lead producer of the fossil fuels. Now, there's a bunch of people that claim they don't want fossil fuels, and if you're, they're against nuclear too, well, that's what we got in Europe, where Europe wasn't producing much of its own fossil fuels, but was also stripping out nuclear plants. Here's the thing. Much of Europe is crap for wind and solar. The wind, it's not just that the wind is weak once you get inside the continental area. Like when you're on the sea, yeah, there's more wind. When you get inside Europe, you have a dense population, a billion people and not a very big continent, which makes it difficult to place wind turbines. And the wind speeds aren't that amazing. But even worse, the wind is pretty similar all across Europe at the same time approximately, right? Then the sun. Europe is extremely far north. Extremely. I mean, sunny southern Italy is about as far north as what? New York City? Like, this is not a place you want to rely on sun energy. And it's not even the daily cycle that's really going to kill you. It's the seasons. You're not going to, you're not going to get seasonal electricity, like gaps fixed with batteries. So, Politicians in Europe were just stumbling along with anti-nuclear ideology, stripping out nuclear plants, taxing them into oblivion to kill them, killing them with policy. We were electing Green Party. I mean, we Europeans were putting Green Party know-nothings, just the, some of the dumbest people you ever heard in your life. Who, they were putting them as energy ministers. And they only had one thing, which was just kill our nation's best power source. The only one that the fuel cost is super low and it's super reliable. That's what Europe was killing for 20 years. And they did it straight into the hands of Putin's little trap. They committed to Putin's pipeline gas 
And then they shut down their own nuclear. And then Putin turned off the taps as part of a, a, a gambit to go along with uh, the Ukraine war. Yeah. So that was a brutal wake up call. Um, political, political upheavals are sweeping across Europe, country after country after country. And typically when this happens, a right wing government comes in and they scrap all the uh, anti-nuclear energy programs. And they now in Europe are talking about building nuclear again for the first time in many years. And unlike America, they do not have cheap fossil alternatives. They don't have it. It's either nuclear or degrowth. That's it. That doesn't guarantee they're going to build nuclear. But we're down to almost no countries in Europe trying to get rid of nuclear. Almost nobody left in power is trying to get rid of nuclear power, which is a great start if you're going to look at building again. I mentioned small reactors earlier in the context of the U.S. I, I outlined uh, what it would take to get the big reactors being built again after the ones in Georgia get finished. But people are saying, if we go to small reactors, even if they're not as efficient and they're bigger for their power output and they take a lot of effort, better to go for a 2 or $3 billion project that might mess up than a 20 or $30 billion project that might mess up. You can survive one even if over its lifetime, it's more expensive per unit of energy generated. The idea is maybe we go small again, like in the old days, like in the 50s and 60s, like when we were doing it with slide rules and rules of thumb, and we start small and then we learn to build again to get larger. This is not what China's doing, by the way. China is extremely good at building large reactors, so they're experimenting with building some small ones. That's not, you see how that's different, right? We are incapable of building the large ones well because we're incapable of building almost all large things well. And we decide, we're deciding that maybe we go to small reactors as practice and trial run for getting bigger reactors. Now, people say things like, oh, it's so we can make the reactors on an assembly line and ship them to site, blah, blah, blah. All sorts of ahistorical bullshit because that's what we did to make the big reactors too. We made the parts of the big reactors on assembly lines and shipped them to site and installed them. So people didn't shrink that vision even further and say, no, 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 no. It'll be like a thing that can fit inside a shipping container and we'll ship that. Okay. Then you have extremely small amounts of power. And per unit of energy, it'd be extremely expensive. The very first thing any country that gets a small nuclear reactor to work is going to do is expand that nuclear reactor. That's how we got to the big ones in the first place. So where does that leave us all? USA, Europe, in the West. The understanding that we need nuclear is almost achieving a full victory over almost all of the West. The understanding is there for serious policy people who didn't know about energy before the energy crisis, but now they learned a thing or two because they had to, that you got to have nuclear. That does not automatically translate into building more. We need our most talented and optimistic young people going into construction and engineering sectors wanting to fix our inability to build big projects and they need to do it at the same time that people who just find themselves in big government bureaucracies want to see these nuclear projects be completed rather than want to see them getting stopped. That's the magic mix. We're slowly moving towards that in a lot of places. Uh, you mentioned a number of nuclear developments that, that you think are popping up over the U.S. Almost. We don't quite have the shovels turning on more than a few little test loops and and maybe some initial prototype things where we're just scraping the dirt a little bit just messing around here's one of the here's one of the big narratives though where i can see this coming in over the next decade coal plants are located in communities that mostly like their coal plants they're located in places that often mine coal they're located in places that politically are not so keen about renewables uh, not it's not uniform. There's some places that both do coal and do wind, like Wyoming. But I'm just telling you the general pattern. Then, coal power plants have transmission lines. It's almost impossible to build transmission lines because if even a single spot wants to block it, you don't have a transmission line. So you also have cooling water. You use that to cool off any type of power plant that uses heat to make electricity. So you have all these things that are just right for making a nuclear plant on that spot. So what we're gonna start to see is countries bringing all sides together to make a coal to nuclear transition. 
Now, coal power has plunged. Even though you mentioned that Germany's going back to coal, they're not going back so much as having to keep all their coal plants, if that makes sense. Like they can't get rid of the coal plants. They're just not making much money with them. They're not getting rid of the coal plants. They just have to have them ready to run. So the coal to nuclear transition is going to be a bigger and bigger narrative. Then our other huge trend in the world is oil and gas producing nations like the you know, OPEC members, the big oil and gas producers. I mean, America is the number one gas producer, but we're still shipping only a bit of the, the gas that we produce. We use it mostly, right? I'm talking the countries that ship two times, three times more than they use, for example. These countries, whatever their domestic energy situation now, are going to start building nuclear. Today, Brandon, I am flying off to Norway. Norway, one of the leading oil and gas producers in the world. Yeah. The only truly large natural gas supplier, pipeline gas supplier left for Europe. It's just Norway's party plus the liquefied natural gas coming in from the ships. Yeah. So Norway had a major shock where they thought they were good, but they had a little bit of a drought that lowered their hydro production at exactly the wrong time when all their neighbors messed up their own energy policies and started needing to suck on that electricity from Norway. The prices skyrocketed. People's electricity bills 10xed overnight. And the government had to step in and just nakedly subsidize thousands of euros per household, just cutting checks out of the out of the national budget, basically. Yeah. So Norway had a big shock and they also had another one, which is Cold War, Warm War. History is still going war is still possible and it's on their borders okay russia is on their borders and it makes a feeling of anxiety that wasn't there only a few years ago yeah a new generation of norwegians that had only known peace and prosperity were faced with what it feels like to not have as much energy as you thought you did and not have as much security as you thought you did so countries like norway countries in the in the persian gulf region they're going to be trying to get nuclear as fast as possible. We already have a, a guiding uh, pathway set up by United Arab Emirates, which decided against everybody else's decisions back in the late 2000s. They decided to go nuclear. They got a nuclear power program put together and they built it right. They paid good money to get it set up. They didn't pay too much money to get it built. So they sharpened their they sharpened their axe for a long time before they started chopping into the tree. They had a huge outreach program to get every decision maker in the country personally and privately briefed on nuclear energy from top to bottom. And they did that before, uh, before during, and after launching their first reactors. So that's going to be the template that I see going forward spreads across the rich oil and gas nations as people learn why, even though we produce a lot of energy from petroleum, um, why we need to have our own needs satisfied by nuclear energy. So there you go. Two big trends, coal to nuclear transition and oil and gas producers satisfying their domestic energy demands with nuclear that helps them also relocate industries from the countries that screw up their energy policy, like Germany into the oil and gas producing countries that get cheap baseload nuclear electricity. Gotcha. And yeah, that was an outstanding breakdown. So I really appreciate you doing all that. But, you know, you, you kind of like uh, you described, I guess, the outlook and where things are going. But I want to focus on like right now, right? I mean, we, we did talk about uh, briefly with like the Russia-Ukraine conflict, kind of how that has created almost like an energy crisis in Europe, you know, is there an energy crisis in Europe right now? Like, is there is there like something that's going to happen? Like, because that's kind of been a narrative, it seems like for for a while, obviously, we're in the summertime now, and it's more worried about in the winter. Like, is there is there something that we should be worried about here in the next, uh, you know, four or five months? Yeah, so basically, Europe cannot physically store enough natural gas topped up by tankers coming in all winter. They cannot import and store enough natural gas to be assured of sufficient supplies to meet historical demand levels going through the winter. By not this winter, not next winter, but the winter after, most experts who study this issue in Europe believe that Europe will have enough storage and will have enough gas import capability. They may not have enough money to buy it at any price, but they'll at least physically be able to deliver the amounts of winter gas 
that used to come from storage, Russian pipeline, and a little bit of domestic production and a little bit of LNG, liquefied natural gas importing. So they lost most of their pipeline gas and they're rapidly constructing liquefied natural gas import terminals. It's basically like a little pier that goes out in the water and you use a little bit of heat from the water and the air to help add heat to the gas to turn it from an ultra cold cryogenic uh, liquid into a, a pipeline gas that flows through the country's system. So very much easier to build those import terminals than to either produce your own gas or liquefy your own gas, but they're doing it as rapidly as possible. Suddenly all these green control environment ministries are just, you know, yes, 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 yes. To all this fossil fuel because um, better than admitting you're wrong about nuclear. Yeah. Anyway, so these next two winters, as they rush to get these LNG import facilities built, there's going to be the potential for a squeeze. Two things would need to happen to squeeze those gas supplies, okay? One, a cold winter. If it's a really warm winter, you know, from Germany helping global warming by burning a bunch of coal in the past and the present, right? Then they might be okay and they nearly merely need to bleed out another half generation of of spare wealth in order to get the insurance policy of having enough gas to, to provide. Here's another thing that's happening, and this one is less commented on, I think. Rather than running low on energy supplies, what Germany's been doing has just been deindustrialized. So where people like me are like, oh no, they're not gonna have enough energy. The sky is falling. The sky kind of is falling, but for Germany's future prosperity, and they're, they're essentially subsidizing today's demand by closing down tomorrow's industries that would, you know, pay social security tax, support the welfare state, um, drive future growth, you know, support an aging population really is what I'm saying. They're losing industry that is reducing energy demand. And everybody's then saying, see, we made it through the winter. What's the problem? All it cost us was everything. So those are the things to look for. Continued crashing demand, making the the pessimists, uh, I guess it wouldn't be the energy bears, the EU bears, the energy bulls look dumb because, see, we didn't need all that fossil fuel. You assumed we'd keep our aluminum industry. You assumed we, you'd, we, we'd keep our um, uh, chemicals industry. No, we can lose all those things. We only spent 150 years becoming the world experts in them only had 150 years of capital buildup minus a few blips here and there from, you know, saturation bombing. But anyway, Germany is losing permanent wealth capabilities, in my opinion, to satisfy temporary demand pinches without having to pay out too much money now. Now, they still had to pay out tens of billions to subsidize energy, and they may end up needing to do something like that going through winter. They're economics minister is going around the country pitching a giant subsidized energy program to try to not lose its industry rather than just turning on the nuclear plants to provide it cheaply no 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 they want to just tax spend tax money subsidizing consumption to get through the next few years because they think that there's something waiting for them on the other side you open this question and my long rambling answer needs to address this is there actually an energy crisis no, as long as you keep deindustrializing Europe, then yeah. it's not a crisis. It's yeah. just stagnation well, and decline. Yeah, it definitely seems like there is some some issues ahead, right? But, but there needs to be development, as you've kind of lined out. Which you know, I mean, we'll we'll, we'll see kind of where where it goes. I mean, it it seems like they're backs against the wall essentially. But well, here's here's the thing: people cite Brandon. They say, look, prices were down here, then there was this huge spike in prices. And now prices are down a little bit lower. But they start those graphs when we were already into the worst European energy crisis in a generation. If you go back to the way things were, not at the start of the Ukraine war, but a little bit further, not at the beginning of winter, but in the summer of 2021, incidentally, the last time I went to speak in Norway, things were starting to look weird. A little bit of drought in, in um, Brazil was reducing their hydro and they were starting to buy up more natural gas. That then started this ripple effect where there was also low hydro in Europe. And then 
there were just somehow less and less volumes of gas being delivered to the spot market by Russia, which was their right. If you didn't have a long-term contract with Russia, they didn't have to deliver gas to your market, right? And so Putin starts his long squeeze going into favorable weather conditions for starting the squeeze, in addition to the burden in Europe of the accumulation of all these nuclear plants being shut down. Um, That coincided with the recovery or the attempted recovery from COVID. So going into July, August, 2021, natural gas prices and, and thus total energy prices and electricity prices really started to rise, 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 rise to levels that were not sustainable for industry. And we've only fallen down back to those levels that are not sustainable for European industry. And they're just kind of stuck there. I gotcha. Well, yeah, you've been very generous with your time. We've kind of lined out, you know, the issues going on in in the U.S. and in Europe. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's like kind of a great overall uh, kind of outlook. Unless you have something else to add, we we can. I think uh, I'll just summarize. Yeah. The survivors, Uh, the optimists and the capable will come together around nuclear. The whiners, the doomers, the degrowthers, the pessimists of all political stripes be the last rump trying to stop nuclear from happening. Yeah. And that's a, that's a great summary. So I appreciate it. Uh, you appreciate you coming on and, and sharing your vast knowledge on, on what's going on here and, uh, you know, safe travels to Norway, uh, as you're, as you're leaving uh, today, but for those that are interested in finding out like more about you, maybe hearing some more of your talks or, or seeing some of your content, um, where's the best place to find you and, uh, yeah, what else do you got going on? Well, you can, uh, go to our consulting website, at radiantenergygroup.com and you can find me by email at mark at radiantenergygroup.com and uh, when I'm traveling or bored or have thoughts that don't merit their own reports or I don't have any clients for the information I just put it on Twitter so that is uh, well Twitter whatever you want to call it I'll just call it Twitter everyone knows what I mean type in twitter.com and go to uh, at energy bands that's e-n-e-r-g uh, G-Y-B-A-N-T-S and you'll find me. Look for the mustache. Awesome stuff. Yeah, and I'll link all that in the show notes as well. So be sure to check it out. And yeah, Mark, thanks so much, man.